Well, last week after the service, one of our members, as I was walking by, kind of pulled me aside and asked me a question. It was a great question. He said, how can I be praying for you? Is there anything I can be praying about on your behalf? And I started to think in my mind when he asked the question of all these different things, these different concerns that I have, and, and I shared a couple of those with him. And, and then I started working on this passage this week. And as I was working on this passage, I started to think about that concept of us praying for one another. And really, what an amazing privilege it is that we have to pray for one another. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. To lift one another up. To love each other in that way where we might go before our Creator and our our Savior and our Sustainer, our Heavenly Father, and bring areas of concern to Him on behalf of others. Have you ever considered what an amazing privilege that is? In our text this morning, we have a prayer written by Paul in this letter to Colossians, this little church in a little city that really was of no consequence and nobody probably would even really know about it if it were not for this letter written to the church there in the ancient world. And this prayer of Paul in verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1 is called an intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayer. Now, at my home church, where I grew up at First Baptist Eulis, there was an intercessory prayer room, 24-7. And so it was this room where where people could come in and out of it from the outside of the building. There was also a way you could get into it from a hallway. And it would be marked, intercessory prayer room, 24-7. And sometimes we would see people going in and out of there. And whenever we would walk by the intercessory prayer room, there were signs that said, quiet. Intercessory prayer room, 24-7. And I always wondered, what's going on behind that door? It seemed like this magical type of prayer that the really spiritual people would do behind this door in this tucked, uh, tucked away place off on the corner of the church. Is this really just for the most dedicated Christians in the room? Uh, what, who are those people? How do you identify an intercessory prayer? All these questions I had as a child, you know. And you might be wondering when I say that word over and over again, intercessory, what does that mean? And you know what? It's so simple. All intercessory prayer is is when you pray on behalf of somebody else. It's when you pray for one another. Something Jesus is said to do for us in Hebrews chapter 25, it says He lives to ever make intercession for us. Jesus stands on our behalf before the Father and He says, See my wounds. See the sacrifice. See my blood. I've paid the price so that your wrath no longer is upon these children. I've taken the wrath that they might be forgiven. Jesus interceded for us on the cross, didn't He? Who should have been there? We should have been there. But Jesus stood in between. And He made intercession for us. But when we intercessory pray, what should we say? We're all called to pray for one another and lift one another up and love one another. Surely loving one another would mean we pray for one another. But what do we say? How should I pray for you? How should I have answered that question? How should you pray for me? How can I pray for you? 
Let's look at our text and see if we can learn how to pray for one another by looking at this prayer, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit. This prayer, it's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, it teaches us a few things. It teaches us we can know God. It teaches us we can know His will. And that we can have the power to do His will, but only by His might, not our own. So the big idea of the sermon, what the sermon is about, what you should walk out whistling is this. We can know God, we can know His will, and we can have the power to do His will and accomplish it, but only by His might, not by our might. So let's break it down. First, in verse 9, we see an example of continuous prayer. Look at the first part of verse 9. And you're going to see where Paul says in here the words, not ceased, not stopped, something like that. You can underline that. And so from the day we heard, okay, from the day that Paul and his associates heard of the faith of the Colossians, that they had put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. So they didn't stop. They were continuing to pray. Continual prayer. Should we be dedicated to pray all the time? Should we? Yes. But do you struggle to pray all the time? The answer is yes, you do. Okay, you can be honest in church. It's a good thing to do. What are the two hardest things for Christians to do? To pray and to read our Bibles. Is that not the truth? When you say, if you were going to improve in an area as a believer, what you really want to do, and where if you were going to have the disciplines that you know you need to have as a believer, the number two on the top of all of our lists would be, first, I want to be, I want to be in the Word. Secondly, I want to be more devoted to prayer. Now, now, why are those two things so hard? Because if we were devoted to Scripture reading and prayer, individually, as a church, if this is where our heart is, we're going to change, we're going to grow, we're going to mature. These, these two things are powerful, right? In the Word of God, God speaks to us. In prayer, we speak to Him. So how are most relationships working out for you? You spend time with somebody. You talk to them. They talk back to you. Well, who knows that these two things are powerful? The enemy. So the enemy knows that if he, keep, if he can keep you out of the Bible, and if he can keep you from praying, that you're not going to grow in the mature. You're not going to grow, and you're not going to become more like Jesus Christ. And so the enemy is doing everything he can to convince you that you've got other things to do. Other things are more urgent. Other things are more important. Because if you actually prayed and read your Bible, if we would commit ourselves to doing this, to be people of the Word, to be people of prayer, there's no telling what kind of power would be unleashed by the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit uses these things to form us and shape us to be more like Jesus Christ. So what are we committed to do every time we gather here at church? Notice what we've done today. We've spent time studying God's Word. We've spent time praying. That's basically what we do here in church. We get in the Word. We fellowship with one another. We fellowship with God. And how often do we do this? 52 weeks a year. We're regular. We're consistent. Without ceasing. We have a midweek prayer meeting. What do we do there? We read the Word and we pray. 
How often do we do this? Every week without ceasing. Now, it's sad that no more than 20 people show up. Here comes the guilt trip. Just be ready for it. Uh, I'm not trying to shame you. I'm not trying to shame you. But here's what I'm telling you. You and me are lazy in this area. Now, there may be a few of you that are very dedicated, and I'm sure most of you that have lived a long life can tell you that to, to build up those muscles of prayer, it takes a lot of work. And it's always going to be a struggle. We're lazy in this area. We, our hearts just and our flesh just naturally resists that desire and urge to pray. Have you ever been standing with someone and you've thought, I should pray for them right now? But something stops you. Maybe you don't know what, you're, what to say. Maybe you you're, you're, think you might be embarrassed or you might make them feel uncomfortable. Listen, the urge to pray for someone is never from the devil. That prompting is always coming from the Holy Spirit. But our flesh just resists it. And, and, and reading the Bible, we can read the internet, we can scroll through Facebook and read all sorts of things, but it's so hard for us just to read a few paragraphs of the Bible. So we're lazy in this area. This is very difficult for us. We're under attack in this area. But if you'll show up on Wednesday, I can guarantee you this. We'll spend 20 to 30 minutes reading the Bible. We'll spend 30 to 40 minutes in prayer. You'll sit there still before the Lord with brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't even have to pray out loud. Or if you need prayer, you can come to that meeting and the, and the people there will be happy to pray for you. And there's people that come to that meeting and you say, I can't go to prayer meeting. The really great Christians are there. The people that really pray and say the best prayers are there. Why are they the people that say the best prayers? Because they've been coming to the meeting. <laughs> and they've been coming week after week after week after week. They come to the meeting and, and those muscles of prayer are built up. And there's accountability there. Because other people are there with you. Listen, the Christian life was never meant to be lived alone. It's not Marlboro Man out on the plains riding his horse all alone. You know, they say there's, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. And then you start, stop and think about the Lone Ranger. Even he had Tonto, right? He wasn't, he wasn't even alone. But we're not intended to live the Christian life alone. If we were, there wouldn't be a church. But there's a church. Why? Why is this the plan? Because this is what we need to be sanctified. I need you. And you need me. And we're in these areas where we're weak, when we come together and do these things, we're made strong. I've talked before about momentum. There can be a Wednesday, I'm sitting in my office, it's in the afternoon, I'm struggling to stay awake. And if it was just up to me, Wednesday at 6 o'clock, I wouldn't be praying. But there's accountability in that group. That group of prayer meeting and then the, the morning meeting here today, it's like a train and it's going 60 miles an hour in the Bible and in prayer. So when you, when you got up this morning, you might have thought, oh man, I don't feel like going to church. And I'm seeing a bunch of empty pews and thinking a bunch of people thought that too. <laughs> but here's the difference between you and them. You got up and you came. And you came in here, and even though you might not have felt like worshiping, and you might not have felt like praying, when you walked in here, you prayed. And you sang praises to God. And now you're, you've opened up God's Word, and we're letting the Holy Spirit speak to us through His Word. And you didn't feel like it this morning, but right now you're on a train, and it's going 80 miles an hour. 
to discipline, to help you with these disciplines and the disciplines that we need that are going to grow us into being more like Jesus Christ. So look at Paul says there's an example there. Since we heard, we've not stopped praying. Secondly, we see a focus on knowledge. Look at verses 9 and 10. And you can underline those two words, knowledge. They're used, the word knowledge is used twice. And so from the day we heard of your faith, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. So here's what we're praying for, that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will, underline knowledge, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So we're praying that you'll know His will, that you'll have wisdom, and you'll have understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. What does that mean, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Okay. Uh, the word worthy, the Greek word there, axios, is the idea of scales. And it's the idea that if you put a, weight on, if you put a heavy weight on one side of the scale, what happens to the other side? It goes up like this, doesn't it? There's no weight on it. And so it's saying that you take an equal weight and you set the equal weight on the scale and it balances it out. How heavy and weighty is what Christ has done for us? It's heavy, right? And so your life should also carry that heaviness. Your, your life should also be a serious uh, 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 testimony to the weightiness of what Jesus Christ has done. You live a life that shows the value of Christ and His sacrifice. And how do you do that? Because you know God's will and you do it. Because you're just demonstrating wisdom that comes from the Spirit. And you're showing that you have an understanding that the world doesn't have. So you're walking in a manner worthy of our Lord, fully pleasing to Him. How do we please God in the way that we live? There's a famous quote from an Olympic sprinter named Eric Little. Maybe some of you remember in the 1980s there was a, a very popular movie that came out called Chariots of Fire. And we all know the song to Chariots of Fire when we hear it, but that movie was about an Olympic sprinter who ran and won a gold medal in an event that was not even his event at the 1924 Paris Olympics. His name was Eric Little. He went on to become a missionary in China and died in an internment camp uh, there in China, he was a missionary. The Japanese were running a camp, and he died there in the camp. I think his appendix ruptured, and he passed away. But there was a quote that Eric Little said that's very famous, probably one of the most famous things that he said about his running and his sprinting. He said, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And you're familiar with that quote from Eric Little. Well, how can we feel his pleasure? Certainly, I can't feel his pleasure when I run because it hurts too much and I'm very slow. But when we are living according to the way the Lord has made us. Okay, Eric Little says, God made me fast. One of the gifts that he gave me is I can outrun all the other guys. Well, how has God made you? How has God made you? Well, because of what Jesus Christ has done, he's made us holy He's made us pleasing to Him. He's given us a new nature that loves His Word, that loves His will. He's given us the Spirit, and the Spirit produces fruits. 
of the Spirit. And so, or fruit of the Spirit. And so the Lord has made us in a certain way in Christ, hasn't He? And so if we're running our race in Christ and we are, if we're living out the life that demonstrates what God, how God has made us, then we will please Him. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now the knowledge of God there is not like just knowing facts. Okay? And the, the diff, there's a different when, when the, this kenosko is the word here in Greek, and it's talking about a certain type of knowledge that's personal. So there's two types of knowledge, right? One way, if, if I was just reading, uh, if I wrote a paper, you know, and I said, well, uh, I'll try to think of some things about Melissa here. Uh, are you nervous now? Yeah, she got a look on her face. All right, <clears throat> I'm going to say only night, like, Melissa, really, her favorite candy is Skittles. Uh, so you can take notes on this if you need to. Uh, her favorite candy is Skittles. She um, drives uh, very fast. She, uh, she has known to have been pulled over in the church parking lot. I mean, I can, t- I can tell you, but I can tell you facts about her, right? She has given birth to three children. She married an idiot. I mean, I can tell you. Uh, <laughs> but you could, know, you could know facts about her, but that wouldn't be the same thing as knowing her, would it? But if you, if you had a friendship with her, you would, you would say, so it's one thing to say, I know about something or I know about someone. I know things about Napoleon Bonaparte, but I'll never know him. But I know Melissa because we have, we're married. We have a relationship. So when he talks about increasing in the knowledge of God, he's saying that you would know God more in a personal way, in the way that people relate to one another. So he's praying that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritualism and understanding. So you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and you'll be pleasing God and you'll be bearing fruit, doing good works, and increasing in your relationship knowledge with God. Why the emphasis on knowledge? Because there were false teachers in Colossae that were telling the people there that the full knowledge of God was a secret and they weren't going to learn it from Paul because Paul just told them the basics. So they were saying, yeah, you know, Paul's kind of the basic level Christianity guy, but if you really want to know God, if you really want to know the secrets, we'll teach them to you. Well, these false teachers had invaded the church. Now, I remember as a boy, I learned a lot by listening to my mom talk on the telephone. Anybody else do that? You just kind of be listening... And she didn't know you were listening. And so sometimes when you're a kid and you're listening to your mom talk on the telephone, you, you, your ears perk up when they start doing something. You know what that is? When they start to spell. They start to spell words that you're not supposed to hear. And they don't really know you can read even though you're like third grade or fourth grade. When mom starts spelling, you better start listening. And so here I was listening to my mom talk on the telephone, but when you listen to someone talk on the telephone, you only hear one side of the conversation. And so you've got to figure out what this conversation is about, and you're only getting half the information. Well, it's the same thing here. We've only got Paul's letter to them. We don't know what's been said to Paul. We only know what Paul is saying back to them. So in this book of Colossians, when we're trying to figure out what were these false teachers teaching, Paul talks about 
Sabbaths. He talks about new moons. He talks about eating regulations. He talks about circumcision. But he also talks about worship of angels, self-punishment, secret wisdom. And so when we listen to Paul's half of the conversation as we read through the book of Colossians, we see that Paul was dealing with some weird teaching. It was kind of a mixture of Jewish legalism and Greek spirituality. And the way that the Greeks taught and the way that the Jews taught was kind of mixing together and it was turning, out into, turning into a false gospel that these false teachers had come up with and they were trying to influence the Colossian church. And so what Paul is saying to the Colossians is he's saying, I'm praying for you that you will fully know God's will and that you will fully know God in fullness. There's nothing lacking in what I've been teaching you. You don't have to go somewhere else and get something else. There's not a magical experience down the road that you need to really know God and to really know His will. And so Paul is is contradicting in his prayer the false teachers that are in their midst who said, you need a little something extra. You need a little extra knowledge. And Paul says, no, no, no. You can know God's will. You can have personal knowledge of God. And you can experience His fullness in the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is praying that they will know God's will. He's praying that they will know God. And then he puts the focus on strength and power. And what those false teachers were saying is you've got to try really, really, really hard. You've got to deny yourself. You've got to do all these things, go through all these rituals, go through all these regulations, and then you'll get the secret. And that's what, not what Paul was teaching them, is it? He's saying you can know God, you can know His will, and you knowing God's will and knowing God is not going to come from your might and your discipline and your righteousness. All that power is going to come from God. Look what he says in verse 11. He's praying that they'll be increasing in the knowledge of God, that they'll be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. That they'll be strengthened with the dunamis, the dynamite power, according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. A few years ago, I bought a tandem bike. Y'all know what a tandem bike is? It's the kind of bike where two people can ride it at the same time. It's got two seats, two handlebars, two sets of pedals. And I bought this bike, and I think I might be the only one in town. I've never seen anybody else riding one. And Adelaide, we would ride that bike every night during COVID. We had a certain route we would take around town. And it's a heavy bike because it's meant for two people to ride it. Now, the other night, we decided we were all going to go for a bike ride. We hooked the trailer up so Melissa could pull Torvi. I said to Emerald, you want to take the tandem? We haven't ridden the tandem in a while. You want to ride the tandem with me? She said, yeah. So we put our helmets on and we got on the tandem bike. And we're riding through town. And I noticed, man, this is hard. You know, we're rode all the way down here, downhill. I'm huffing and puffing, trying to get this bike back home. And Melissa sees that I'm struggling. And she looks over at Emerald and she says, are you helping pedal? <laughs> and Emerald says, not really. <laughs> I was doing all the work. I was providing all the power, and she was having a nice ride through town. 
Now listen, you can try to live the Christian life that way. You can try to live the Christian life in your own power. A lot of people do that when they get saved. They get saved, they think, I'm going to be really, really, really good. I'm even going to go to prayer meeting. I'm going to show up at church every single week. I'm going to quit sinning. And how long do they last? They don't. They quit. They get discouraged. Some people even don't ever come back to church again. They'll say, oh, I tried religion, and it didn't work. You cannot live the Christian life in your own power. Because eventually you'll encounter a problem you can't solve. You'll encounter a difficulty you can't overcome. You'll uh, meet a circumstance that is bigger than you. But let me tell you a truth. God never has a problem too big. God never encounters a difficulty. God never encounters a circumstance that's too big for him. So you've got to let him do the peddling. That's how you live the Christian life. That's the power that Paul is asking for in this prayer. He's asking God that he might demonstrate his might in the life of these Colossians. That that they might have power according to his power. So they won't quit. So they'll endure. So they'll be patient. And so they'll have joy. I mean, look there at verse 11. Underline those words. Don't you want those words? Perhaps I should have said that when I was asked, when, uh, how can I pray for you? I should have said that I will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. That I will endure because I'm a quitter. That I'll be patient because I'm impatient. And I'll have joy because sometimes I'm sour. Okay, a lot of times. Where's this power seen? It's seen when our lives change. When we, when we come to Christ and then we demonstrate self-control where we had no control. Our desires change. Our affections change. The things we care about, the way we feel changes. Where there was no conviction of sin, there's conviction when we sin. A changed life is a life of repentance over and over and over again. What's more powerful than, than the Red Sea parting? It's that kind of change in a life. Adelaide and I were talking about that. And I don't, I don't even remember what it was. Um, I can't remember the, the circumstance that brought it on. But we'd been with Christians. We'd been in a room full of Christians. And we were just talking about how amazing all these believers were. And I said, you know, that really is the amazing thing about Christianity, isn't it? She said, yes, it's amazing. That when you're around Christians, you just can't believe what God has done in their lives. How, how wonderful it is to have that fellowship in Jesus Christ. That's the demonstration of God's power to change people that are selfish and make them love each other. When we look in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, and there's this idea there that, that God's purpose for the church is to demonstrate His wisdom to the angels in heaven. So that the angels look down at us and they say, I can't believe what God has done here with these people. We've been watching human beings since he made them. And we know what they're like. And look what you've done with this church. How you've taken these selfish people who normally just want to use each other. And you've made them love one another. And sacrifice for one another. That's the power of God. That's what happens when someone believes the gospel. They change. And if you haven't changed, maybe, you, maybe you're not saved. Because this is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel has power to change us 
and make us new. And you may say, well, I still sin. I'm still messing up. Well, there's still power there because you're convicted about it. And you have a desire to change. And you keep leaning into that. And you keep going to other believers. You keep praying. You keep asking other people to pray for you. And he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. It's a promise. And it may not be happening as fast as you want it to happen. We were in that forest a couple of weeks ago at that wedding. And seeing those massive redwood trees. And you stand under those trees like as tall as a building. And you think, how long has that been there? Hundreds and hundreds of years probably. It didn't start off that way though, did it? It started off a sapling. And it took it years and years and years. Listen, God, God works slow like that. You know, whenever we talk about a harvest and we talk about the way uh, God grows people, I mean, sometimes, well, there's two ways that it's talked about. Our salvation sometimes comes just like fishing, right? One minute the fish is just swimming around in the sea. And the next minute, it's popped up. It's in a boat, in a net. And some of that's our testimony. Some of us, just God just saved us like this. But that process of making us more like Jesus Christ, it's, we call it growing. I'm not, we've been here for 10 years. Y'all remember what Emerald looked like when we got here? She was about 16 months old. Is that what she was? 16, 8, 15 months old. She was little. She had these little pigtails, and she was really cute. And now look at her. Now she's, ten, now she, uh, she's 11. <coughs> she's 11, and she doesn't pedal on the tandem bike. And, no, she's 11, and she's, I mean, she's, not, she's grown so much. And we would say, well, you know, we can see the difference, but we've not actually observed the growth because it happens so slowly. It's happened over the course of a decade that she's grown like this. And uh, sometimes that's with the kids. You know, we, we, whenever people haven't seen Sawyer in a while, maybe the last time they saw him, he was five or six years old, and they see him now, and they're like, what happened to you? You know, because they haven't seen him. But whenever we're living this life together, we're not always going to observe the growth. But we come every, every week, week after week after week, after week and over years after years and decades after decades we look back at that person we were that Christ saved and we say we're completely different and someone that knew us then and hasn't observed the change might come to us and say what happened to you you know we haven't observed the change the change happens very slowly as they say in sports you got to trust the process and the process of becoming like Jesus takes a long time it takes faithful walking. We don't say, how's your, your sprint with Christ? We say, how's your walk with Christ? Because it's something that happens at such a slower pace. Let Him change you. Lean on His power, not your own. Then Paul turns the focus in verse 12 to the gospel. <clears throat> Praise that they, that, uh, uh, that they will know God's will, that they'll have the power to do it, and he says, I've been praying for this and I've been giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If I was underlining here in my Bible, I would underline those words, in light. We've been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints. He has delivered us, verse 13, from the domain of darkness. We're in the light now. We were in the domain of darkness. 
But now we've been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We've got gospel words there, don't we? Qualified, delivered, transferred, redeemed, forgiven. What does it mean to be saved? What does this verse say that it means to be saved? It means you have been moved. You have been delivered from the darkness into the light. All the religions will give you some way to get to God. Isn't that true? Isn't that that while the religions exist? How can I know God? How can I know why I'm here? How can I know where everything is headed? How can I know how I should live? These are the big questions of life, and the religions on this earth are trying to answer those questions. And what do the religions give you? They give you rules to obey. They give you philosophies to believe. They give you rituals. They give you education. But you don't need rules. You don't need philosophy. You don't need rituals. You don't need education. What you need is a Savior. You need to be delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And all those rules and rituals and education, some of those are good things, but they don't save you. The only way you can be saved is if God makes you fit for heaven by grace through faith in what Jesus Christ has done. It's the only way. And you can't do it yourself. That's why these verses are so wonderful. That's why Paul's so thankful in verse 12 because God qualifies us. We don't qualify ourselves. That's why Christianity is different than all the other religions. In all the other religions, you have to work to qualify yourself. But in our understanding of the gospel, what makes it such good news is that God, through Jesus Christ, has done all the work. Now, some people say, well, it's, it's a free gift. Well, that, that's, that's true. That's true in a sense, but, but it's free to us, but somebody had to pay for it. It was a very costly gift when you think about what Jesus Christ has done to qualify us or make us fit for heaven. On the cross, what he did was he took all of our sins upon himself. And and the Bible says that God considered Jesus to be sin when he's there on the cross, and he punished the sins that we should be punished for. The the wrath that should have been directed towards us was directed towards Jesus. And then God's wrath was satisfied so that whenever we turn in repentance and faith to God, when we turn and we put our faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done... God's wrath has been averted and we're no longer condemned. And then Jesus, who was perfectly righteous, takes our sin and he also gives us his righteousness. So when we stand before God, we're qualified because one day I'll stand at the judgment before God and I will be acceptable. I'll be fit for heaven because I will be wearing Jesus' righteousness. See, I didn't qualify myself. Jesus did all the work. He took the sin. He earned from his perfect life. He earned the righteousness that he was able to give to me. So my sins were put into his account, and his righteousness was put into my account. So when I stand before God, my account bears righteousness, which makes me fit and qualified for heaven. Who did all that? Not me. As one preacher famously said, the 